Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be focused again on the time period of the Middle Ages and on into the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. This is an overview, a macro perspective on these time periods and how society evolved and the institutions that were in power evolved, how those powers that they held and that influence shifted between institutions and between the individual and the state and society and all these different groups and functions of the society that was around at that time. So the episode that I did last week was focused more on the systems such as the church and the state and how things were set up overall. This episode is going to focus more on economics and theology and technology, so more of the immaterial aspects. So if you think of it like this, episode one was more about the hierarchical structure and uh, a more visual representation, and I guess I'll get into that analogy of visual versus audible, but this episode today is more audible. This is something that's more fluid, more uh, rhizomatic, more immaterial, something that is uh, more conceptual, ideational, these types of things. And so the following episode that I'll do next week, following this one, will be one that looks into the future and compares more the time period of the Thirty Years' War and the effects of the Reformation to our near future today and the effects of these things that are going on today, these shifts that are occurring. And that will bring us directly into the next series that's going on, And as long as the next series is what I think it will be, I think it will be on historical patterns and cycles. I believe so. If not, that will be the next, next series. But that's the one I'm looking forward to probably the most. I've been doing a little more research in that field and a lot to apply there. And I'll apply some of it today because actually some of the stuff I was researching with uh, Marshall McLuhan mainly ties into feudalism, which ties into the economics of this time period, which I will be touching on in today's episode. So I guess I will likely incorporate that as I give some commentary on these things. But that is the plan. As a reminder, for those that are kind of new here, this is season four of the podcast. Season one was about the evolution of human society leading up to today's structures and systems and the evolutions, both history as well as future and alternative movements going on today. All of those things are wrapped up in season one. Season two is what this current series is about, pretty much. It's all about this parallel between the time period of the Reformation through the Thirty Years' War, and some before that, the Middle Ages and such, and comparing that to modern times, modern power shifts, modern evolutions. Then there was an interim period that was linked directly to this concept of looking at historical parallels, and that was uh, a an interim period, let's say season 2.5, that had quite a few interviews that were overall focused on topics that didn't fit into season one 
or two, and that melded into some interviews that focused a lot on historical patterns and parallels and things that are going on today and looking into our future, given the trends and given the cycles of history, all of those types of things. That was, let's say, 2.5. And then season three was looking at the early church, the original church, as an example of an alternative movement that was not very fond of the culture of Rome or the state of Rome or uh, a lot of what they were around, surrounding them, such as the institutional religion of their day. And they were this alternative movement that didn't try to rebel or revolt. They didn't try to get in the political system and change it from the inside. No, they built their own systems. And that is what I advocate as well. So season three is all about that parallel and uh, goes into everything from theology and how that's similar to ideologies of today and comparing the original church to like the agorist movement and things Things of that nature. So that's season three. And then season four, what we're in now is going back over all that content that I've done over the entire history of the podcast over the past few years and looking at things from more macro perspective and tying things together a little more deliberately and a little more broadly, because once you step back and you cover things from this macro view, then uh, the pieces really start to fall together a lot easier and a lot better and a lot more clearly. Whereas when you get into the details and you dive into the trenches of this information, you can kind of get lost in that trench and miss the ocean that's around you. And so as we step back and we see the entire ocean with all the trenches and how they connect together, that is something that I'm trying to do now in season four. So with that, as I'm sure you could guess or you already know, uh, this series I'm in now is the parallel to season two of the show and my reference to the upcoming series being historical patterns and parallels is uh, that roughly season 2.5 where I did quite a few interviews with some other guests, Vin Armani, Allison McDowell, Julianne Romanello, I don't even remember all of the different people, but lots of people that were uh, definitely trending in that time period and really that helped give some input, some different perspectives to this information. And so I'm really looking forward to covering that and tying all those concepts together from a macro perspective and inserting uh, my views and my research on the historical patterns and parallels and things of this nature. I think that's going to be really cool. So really looking forward to that. But since I have gone on enough in this introduction to this episode, let's just get into this episode. So to just dive right in, as a reminder, we're looking at this time period of the Middle Ages. And as you had the fall of Rome and you get into the uh, medieval period, you had guilds that formed and essentially ran commerce. So you would have, it depended on the city. Some cities would have one guild and it had tradesmen of all different trades and crafts. And this would be a very small, maybe a small village. But then you had cities that had guilds for all kinds of different, very specific tasks. So you might have some sort of clothes maker guild, but you also might have a, a city that has so many guilds that you have a guild full of craftsmen that do nothing but make the sleeves for garments or the fringes for the outsides of the garments and someone who makes buttons and sews them on and someone that assembles garments and someone that uh, finishes the cloth and the material so that they can be used for garments. And you might have five or six different guilds 
all about making clothes. Whereas, again, some cities, you might have one clothiers guild or whatever that would be called. And some cities, uh, that person might be tied in with many other trades and crafts if it was a fairly small village or something of that nature. But the point is that in a city there would be these guilds, they would cover certain trades and crafts, the the work and the skilled artisans that existed there, and that needed to be done. And so when you have these people get together and form some sort of organization, some sort of structure, some sort of alliance, then they end up with a lot of power because they are doing things that are very necessary for that village and for that city. They also often had relationships with the local lord where they would have permissions to have a monopoly on a certain thing or they would just enforce their own monopoly on a certain trade. They would limit who could become uh, the advanced level. I think that's the journeyman, I guess, and then how many apprentices they would bring in, or I guess the master would be the ultimate. So they would uh, regulate how many people would graduate from journeyman to master and be able to run their own shop or whatever. They would also regulate how many people got brought in as apprentices at the bottom level. And then as the apprentices started to learn, they would become journeymen where they would be more skilled at their task. And as they mastered their craft, they could be masters and then go out on their own. But the guild as a whole would run all these things. It would do price controls. It would make sure that there there weren't too many craftsmen in a certain field to flood a market and vice versa, make sure there were enough people to fulfill demand in a certain market. And so that's what was really going on. It was uh, this system where the trades and the crafts and the workers actually held a good bit of power. And uh, this was done through the economics of the system that they lived in. And this is very similar of unions that existed, let's say, a few decades ago when they had a lot more power, let's say the 1950s in that range. And at that time period, you had a very similar deal where especially in the uh, factory workers and the trades and these types of fields, you had these unions that would largely dominate a certain sector of the economy in a certain city or a certain geographical area. And they did have a lot of power. They were made up of these different uh, aspects of trade and crafts and Uh, manual labor and things of this nature. And so uh, there is a parallel that goes on there. But again, that doesn't translate to modern time. I'm talking about the mid 1900s. So what about the year 2000 and going on? Well, uh, that's where we bring in this next aspect where you had the merchant bankers that arose in this time period, kind of as at the tail end of the Uh, power of the guilds. And there was a lot of overlap here. And we are talking very broadly, by the way, talking about probably a few thousand years over the course of this episode. So take that with a grain of salt. But the merchant bankers started to gain more power and influence. And they ended up taking power through networks. They didn't take power through 
products or through certain trades or uh, skills that they had or manual labor or things of this nature. That's not what it was about. It was about a network. It was about funds and lending money and borrowing money and investing in certain ventures and having this large network for communications and pairing together buyers and sellers and importing things and exporting things, these types of things. The merchant makers weren't necessarily the ones that were making the things that were exported. They weren't necessarily the ones using the things that were imported, but they had the network. And that is where their power truly lay. And so with this, you start to see a shift in how this power is attained, how it is used, how it is held, how it is manipulated. You can also see that the merchant bankers were tied in. They were tied in with the guilds. They were tied in with the lords. They were tied in with the kings. They were tied in with the church. And the example that I've been using that I think is a very fitting example is the Medici. The the Medici were entwined with the nobility, with the church, with the guild, all of these things. There were Medici popes. There were Medicis that married into royalty and became queens even. And you had Medicis that pretty much ran guilds. They at times were the leaders of certain guilds, like in Florence and places of that nature. And so you had them using all of these existing institutions, but they weren't necessarily any of these institutions. I am equating the merchant bankers more with the lords than with any other group, at least in my very broad split of society of that day. So if you basically say that there was the church, there was the nobility, and then there were the common people, well, the the Medici, the merchant bankers, uh, they were more in line with the nobility than they were with anything else. But they were tied in with all of them, and they kind of... Uh, they were much more fluid. And this is the role that big tech, if you haven't guessed, is playing in today's world. It's all about the networks. It's not about the certain products that they're buying or selling, the certain data that they're buying or selling. It's about the network and the ability to attain that data and sell that data, attain the products, sell the products, make the connections between buyers and sellers, these types of things. It's, it's the whole concept of the merchant bankers. Big tech is also tied in with the institutions of our day. So you could say the church of this historical time period we're talking about is equivalent to the state today. And there are all kinds of connections between the state, the government, government funding, intelligence organizations, all of these things, uh, all kinds of ties between them and say Google or Amazon or Apple or all these different big tech companies, even corporations such as Microsoft and IBM, lots of tie-ins there. But that's not it, because like the merchant bankers, they're tied in on every level. So the modern parallel to the class of the nobility is the corporate world. And big tech is definitely tied in on all levels to the corporate world as a whole. It's not that they just only have this one little sector of the corporate realm, which they do. They have this tech sector. That's why they get the name big tech. But 
at the same time, their platforms, their systems are what are running corporations all around the world in thousands of different sectors around the globe in many different territories, many different regions, many different markets, many different applications. They're all running on this technology, running on these platforms that big tech has developed and created these networks that they have formed. And so the interfacing between corporations in the corporate realm is often done through big tech or products of big tech or the network that big tech creates. And that is very similar, again, to the merchant bankers, where the noble class used the Medici. They well, they used them as their bankers, as a place to get money, as a place to use influence and assert influence, these types of things. And so uh, that's what big tech is doing in today's world, in the corporate world. But then there is this other aspect of the guilds. And again, the guilds are not necessarily equivalent to unions today. The guilds might have been equivalent to the unions of a few decades ago at the most, but in today's world, uh, that's become a little more decentralized. And so you've got, let's say, channels or um, different people that have a very strong following, influencers, people of this nature, and you have uh, certain people or groups of people that are the most influential in a certain area. So I'm sure, and I don't know much about this, but I'm sure on YouTube, there are a handful of people that are really big in the makeup scene and how to do your own makeup. I know there are a handful of people that are at the top of the list for homesteading. There are a handful of people at the top of the list for biohacking and all these different things. You've got these guilds, in a sense, that are forming that get the majority of the work. It's not that there weren't there wasn't anybody doing carpentry in a city that had a carpenter's union that wasn't a union member. There were still people that did build some things and repaired some things and that did exist. But let's say 80, 90% or more of the work that was done in that city that was carpentry work was done through the carpenter's guilt. And uh, I would say it's a similar thing in today's digital landscape where the people that are at the top of these different fields, it's not that they are the only ones there. No, there are thousands, if not millions of other uh, authors of content online in these different sectors and fields, and that does still exist. But let's say 80% of the views, 90% of the views can be summed up in this small group of people, and that would be more analogous to the guilds. It could be um, thought of kind of similarly that the guilds have melded with the nobility, where this concept of a guild and the concept of corporations, these structures are kind of one in the same now, where as you have mergers and acquisitions, like I talked about last week, you now have, let's say, the area of media. And there's only a handful of companies at the top that run 90% of the world's media. If you look at an industry like Big Pharma, there is only a handful of companies that run 90% of pharmaceutical industry-related things in the entire world. Same with big tech, same with all these different sectors. So they end up acting like a guild as well. And so like many things, these patterns can be fractal and looked at on a on a minuscule level, an individualized level, as well as an institutional level, as well as a more macro level, historical level. Uh, that's the beauty of fractal patterns. And that 
that is how you can tell that it is something that actually is very applicable when it does apply in multiple different ways. Now, as the merchant bankers rose, there were these new banking practices and dynasties financed war and state consolidation through these new banking practices. Now, it's kind of interesting because early on, it was illegal to loan out money at interest. That was usury. And at first, Jews, uh, through a series of complicated reasons, they were the only ones that were able to loan out money at interest. But then you had people like the Knights Templar that essentially started doing this. And over time, it started to be a thing that was done for, again, various complicated reasons. And as this became a thing that was done, these merchant bankers often would latch on to the noble class because uh, they were a very very useful group to latch onto, to make deals with, to loan money out to, and financing war was extremely profitable. Some of their interest rates were over 100% on the money and on the gold. So this was a pretty big deal. In addition to that, contracts with the church equaled wealth and power to a very large degree. Whoever was the church's main banker, that banker, that family, that dynasty, that corporation, however you want to look at that, that they had so much more, such a huge influx of money, of influence, of power, of responsibility. All of these things came with that contract. It's kind of like how... Amazon and Microsoft have these contracts with the Department of Defense and the CIA and the NSA, all of these government contracts that are very lucrative, very important, and they become critical infrastructure of the state. The state is running its systems on big tech's networks and hiring out big tech to do this, just like the monarchs of the time, or well, let's go keep with the parallel, the church of the time, uh, the church was using these merchant bankers and their networks to move around their money, to purchase things, to sell things, to uh, borrow money and loan money, all of these things. They were using the network of the bankers, and the church had a lot of money flowing in and out. And so this was a very lucrative place to be as a merchant, as a banker. Now, as you had the rise of the merchant class, you also had the rise of education for, again, many different reasons. But the ones I'll focus on right now is that you as the merchant class starts to grow and as economics start to change and as the nobility shifts from, I guess you could look at the knight and the role of a knight as they shifted from this fighting force to more lords and noblemen. And as you start to have these shifts in the society, you needed more people that could write. You needed to be able to do accounting. You needed to be able to track transactions. You needed to be able to do all these things, especially as you had these new banking practices really start to get going. So you had this rise of education in these certain classes, at least. And then you also had the introduction of the zero and of Arabic numerals. And with this, this opened up new possibilities, new efficiencies, a whole new way of doing things. The double entry accounting system is accredited to this time period and the introduction of things like the zero and Arabic numerals being introduced and the changes that this brought with what you could do with numbers, how you can manipulate them, how how you can use them to uh, do such a huge infinite number of things that they didn't even know they couldn't do 
until they learned that they could do them. And it's very similar to big tech and the technology of today and the internet, where as we get this introduction of the internet and this new technology that's been brought in and gone mainstream, there are these new ways that that can be used that people never even thought of until it was something that was done and something that was possible. It it created standards that are used worldwide on a level of standards. It's a standard for the industry to use some of these certain platforms and some of these certain algorithms and things of this nature. And so that is something very similar as the rise of big tech came, you have the rise of the technology of the internet, just like you had the rise of the technology of the introduction of the zero and some of these different accounting practices and things of this nature, not to mention the technology of the printing press, and we will get there. But uh, that's even more analogous here. But just some of these changes that were going on as we're looking specifically at the merchant class, the Medici, comparing that to big tech in particular, that this is something that's really it really partners together very well. There's a lot of the same things going on here. Now, again, as knights transitioned from fighting to ruling, they needed an education. They needed peasants to build wealth as well. So it wasn't just that the knights were changing, that that role in society was changing. It's also that the peasant class was changing. The people at the bottom were changing. I talked about how Roman slaves uh, oftentimes ended up becoming serfs in the feudal system, and that was a change of their role and change of uh, that system. But again, with the knights, they transition, and as you become a lord and rule over a territory, a region, you need people to work that region. The whole value in the land is the resources that are there. And so they need the people to then get those resources so that they can pass along a lot of those resources to the knight or to the lord or to the king. It's, again, a fractal pattern here. And that was a very important thing that needed to exist. That is how this system worked with feudalism. And this is fairly similar to corporations that are transitioning from competition to technocracy. So it was that the corporations were fighting each other in this cutthroat way. But again, like I've talked about with mergers and acquisitions and more of a guild-type system where it's there are more of these alliances of small handfuls of companies at the top of each sector, this is part of that transition from fighting to ruling, from competition to technocracy. And with this, the value, it's not that there's value in the resources of the land, because it's not like these corporations are owning vast swaths of land. The value is in the resources in this virtual technological world. The value comes from the data. The data is the resources that were gathered from the land, from the lords um, and the peasants and the knights, from those folks in this historical time period, the modern equivalent is data and the customer base that is needed to collect that data. The users are needed to build power, to gain the data, to mine this virtual landscape and then pass along those resources, that data, that information, all of these things to the Lord. And that would be to a, let's say, a corporation through the platform, through the feudal system. And again, it's it's all analogous here. And 
with this, this is where I will tie in a little bit of Marshall McLuhan. I've been looking into him a lot lately and a lot of very applicable things from him. And I'm very excited to tie some of those in in future episodes. But the one thing that I think is very applicable now that I was just actually listening to something about it today was this idea of digital feudalism and that that this is something that is going on. And he called it out from a different context, but it's the exact same thing that I'm talking about here that you're going to start. And again, he was writing back in, let's say, the 50s and the 60s. This was pre-internet and pre-computers the way we know them now and pre-media the way we know it now. He was talking about the introduction of radio that was more current and the introduction of television that was becoming mainstream in his time period and how that was changing society. So, you know, much less the internet that's going on today. But, But with this, he brought up this concept of digital feudalism and how this is what was going on, where the digital landscape is, it's a land grab, but it's all digital land. It's all this virtual world. And these corporations are fighting for these chunks of land. And it's the users, the people that are watching the content, using the content, watching a news program. These are the people, these are the peasants that are building the wealth of the corporation and gathering the resources of this virtual land to pass along to the corporation. Again, if you think of like a news network, and you could even go back to McLuhan's time or to today, the way that they make money is through advertisers. They have companies that support their show and pay to put up advertisements. Well, why are those advertisements on the news channel Uh, Why are they valuable? Well, it's because there is such a large customer base. It's because all of the peasants, it's because all of the serfs, it's because all of the people watching, it's because an advertiser can reach so many people by having an advertisement on that news program that they are willing to pay that much money. That money then goes to the media company that runs that news program. And so again, this value that is derived from the serfs, from the watchers of this news program is then funneled to the corporation. And that is done by uh, bringing in these resources that are gathered from the people. And the resources now are attention and data and ratings and things of this nature, because they represent the Uh, the peasants that are mining the land, so to say. And that's what makes that valuable. You could even extend this parallel even further. So if you think of the feudal system, you have these lords that have territory and they have peasants that work that territory. So let's say the lords are, uh, let's say the individual companies of big tech. So Google and Facebook, uh, these types of corporations that have these big tech platforms and they have their peasants that are on those platforms. Well, what the Lord can do, and uh, I guess, yes, we can look at it this way. So what the Lord can do is the Lord can pass off sections of land and pay a knight or pay a lesser Lord in land for their military service, for, you know, their loyalty for these types of things. And this is what was going on in the feudal system. This is kind of why it got so complicated over time is because this continued over time exponentially and it got very complicated. But with this, you have a similar thing going on today where you can have a platform like, let's say, YouTube, 
and YouTube then passes out chunks of land to different individuals creating content, different YouTube channels. And so these YouTube channels have these chunks of land, some large and some small. And what they do is they then farm that land. And if they are a true, uh, we could put it this way, if they are a true lesser lord or a knight, then they're going to have peasants that are then working their land and bringing them personally wealth and power and influence on a small level that they are then passing along up to the lord of the overall land, and that would be the platform provider like a YouTube. And then there's also a king. The king is over the lords, and he has a very similar relationship. We have a king that has allocated very large swaths of land to these different uh, nobles, and those nobles then allocate smaller lots of land to lesser lords and knights and things of this nature. And so the king in this example would be Google. Google is the one that owns YouTube. And so uh, Google not only has YouTube, but they also have the leading search engine for the internet and leading by far so much so that people say I'm going to Google something, not I'm going to search for something on the internet. And so they have that as well. They also have the leading browser for accessing the internet, Google Chrome. They also have their own phones that you can buy, smartphones, the Pixel phones. And so they have all all these different uh, platforms that are going on. So let's say the king is Google, or now we can say Alphabet is the overall parent company. And then they have allocated these large swaths of land to these different uh, nobles, to these different lords. And that would be YouTube and uh, Google search and all of these different things. And then those lords then allocate out to lesser lords and to knights that then start getting into that common class and they're bringing in peasants and they're working the land and passing up that data, those resources as they mine the land, the customer base, the users, and feed that up the chain. And that's how this system works. And that is the feudal system. That, that is nearly exactly what was going on in this time period. And then at the top of this, so you did have the kings that were in a way at the top, but over the king's in a way, would be the church. So it's not that the church had direct leadership and rulership over a king, but it was that within Christendom, which is this whole area of Western Europe that we've been focused on, the king was almost always subservient to the church. And overall, they would try to do things that would be looked upon in a positive light by the church, and that people that were under them, their peasants, their, let's say now, their employees and their customer base, would view as being friendly to the church, good practices. They were good Christian kings, just like these corporations are good law-abiding corporations, looking out for society, and of course, the state is the historical church. So the state today is over these corporations. But again, it's it's not necessarily directly, because corporations today, especially in this technological world, are global. And it's not that they're under one particular state. Now, often they are incorporated in one certain country, but they could always just shut down operations in that country and operate in others. And that's very doable. That has been done many times. And so... Uh, 
that is something that they can do. They are not directly under strictly the authority of the state, but they are largely under that authority. They are voluntarily subservient to the states where they do business in, the states that have jurisdiction and the various territories that they operate in. And then also, they want to be looked upon as being a law-abiding, as being a positive influence on society. And they're not rebels that are going against the state even though at times they do, even though at times the kings went against the church. But in general, they followed the rulings of the church, the the theology that the church was putting out, just like the ideology that the state is putting out, the laws and the legal code that they are structured under, these types of things. And so that's what was going on then. That's what is going on now. Now, as all of this starts to build. You have all these large changes that are going on. You started to have in this historical period a large non-working class that was starting to develop. These bureaucracies were getting bigger. So as I mentioned the feudal system, how you had, let's say, a king, and then he passed on territories to a handful of lords. And then each one of those lords might pass on territories to different knights. And each one of those knights might even have lesser knights that work for them with a few families that run that land. And it just goes on and on and on. So the bureaucracy of those that were the, quote, non-working class those that were ruling and taking on this position of uh, governance and management, that they started to grow, both with this uh, this system, the feudal system, and the nobility, but also with the church. The church was the dominant institution, and it just got larger. It got more dominant, more influential, and its bureaucracy started to grow further and further and bigger and bigger. And it's same in the corporate world today, both in the corporate world and in the state. You have this exponential increase of this bureaucratic political class, as well as the executive class in corporations, the administration, the managerial class that is building and building and building government workers. There's more and more and more of them. And so when you have this start to happen, I guess we'll get into that probably in the next episode, but uh, let's just stick here and say these things are happening. You're starting to have these bureaucracies build to this uh, very grand stature, and that's not necessarily a good thing. But that is what is happening in the corporate world and the state, just like it was happening within the nobility and the church. And we will look at where those patterns lead to in the next episode, I believe. So the church. The church ruled through theology, and the state in today's world rules through politics. Uh, These are very analogous. Theology then, politics now. And uh, with this, all of society, for the most part, filters things through uh, this one thing. So in the historical time period, everything was filtered through theology. It was in every part of one's life. Their education was centered around theology. How they viewed science was viewed through this lens of theology. How they worked was largely influenced by their theology, their practices, their work ethic, all of these things. How they spoke and the things that they spoke about, even their their culture in their uh, their villages, their cities, their large areas. All of these were heavily influenced by theology, by what the church says. And 
this is very, very similar to how today's world is so influenced, so filtered through politics, everything from the education system to conversations to the workplace to all of these different things. Politics is infused. That is the worldview that everybody world uh, views the world through. That's just how things are today, just like they were back then. And the priest class of this historical age is like the political class of the modern age. They are this class of people that are at the top. They're these experts. They are the ones who interpret the law or the Bible. They are the ones that dictate politics or theology. They are the ones who are looked at as being above the rest of us because they know, because they are in this influential position with the church or the state. Uh, This is their role. This is the priestly class. And you have this hierarchy that was set up in this time period where it went from your local priest to a more regional bishop to the overall pope that was in charge of the entire church to scripture. The pope is technically under scripture, under the Bible. And at the top of that, overall, above everything, is God. And this is very similar, again, to our modern state, where at the bottom on the local level, it's not priests, you have local representatives and a local government. And then at the higher, more regional level, where you have the bishop in the historical time period, you have federal representatives, congressmen and senators and uh, these uh, governmental agencies and things of this nature. Then at the very top, you do have a person that runs the entire church or the entire state. That would be the president. And obviously, I'm using the United States as my example, as I always do or usually do. And then there is something above the president. The president can't just do whatever the heck he wants. Uh, he is beholden to the the law of the land, the the very important religious documents, uh, the Bible, the scripture, now it's the constitution and the law. And so just like the Pope is under scripture, the president is under the constitution. But overall, there's this overall uh, large overarching theme, thing, entity that governs everything. And it's this idea not of God ruling over everything. It's this idea of freedom where we are our own gods and we rule our own lives. And And this concept of freedom is what is supposed to be at the top of everything. Now, again, you can tell that there are plenty of corruptions that existed with the church. The Pope often used scripture to his own uh, advantage, and often they went directly against the principles of God, just like the president will often use the Constitution to his own advantage, and he will use laws in a way that they weren't originally intended, and it ends up going against the whole principle of what freedom truly is. And this filters all the way down and all the way up. Now, another thing that was shifting in this time period, when we talk about how everything was filtered through uh, theology, art was the same way. So medieval art, there was a lot of meaning behind the images and how they depicted certain scenes and people and backgrounds and all of these things. Medieval art had a lot of meaning to it. It was more of this pure theology. And as you shifted into this later time period coming up towards the Reformation, let's start with the Renaissance. As you start to get to the Renaissance, then you start to have art being more secularized. It's It was still heavily 
influenced by theology, but it was more secular than it was previously. And it was a little more rebellious, a little more scandalous. It was more focused on entertainment than the more intellectual art of the medieval time period. And so th- this is something that I think you can see with modern the modern world, where that you could use media as an example, where media used to have more meaning and deeper meanings when you look at books and even movies, where there, there was more going on. It was a little more intellectual, where now things are much more focused on on the secular, on the senses, on pleasures, on entertainment, on uh, action and sex and all of these types of things where uh, those weren't the main focuses in, in the more pure theology of earlier art in our modern time period, as well as medieval art versus uh, going post-Renaissance. And with this, I mentioned how uh, the church was corrupted. Theology as a whole was corrupted, and politics today is corrupted. The Bible was used as an excuse for evil. You had interpretations that benefited the church, not Christians, just like the law and the Constitution is now used as an excuse for ruling over people, taking away people's freedoms, just like evil is the opposite of good and God would be the representative of good, uh, taking away people's freedoms, controlling people, censoring people, putting people in jail. These are the opposites of freedom, and freedom is supposed to be the overarching God of our modern age. And so uh, this is something that is going on now, too. You have not only the institution of the state that's corrupted, you have the theology of the state, the the politics that are behind it, that is being corrupted as well, or is corrupt at this point. Control stems from corrupt religion and indoctrination, just like control now stems from corrupt politics and propaganda. This is where control comes from. So as you have these institutions that are more centralized, get more power, have greater bureaucracies, you have this working, this non-working class that is ruling and gaining even more personal wealth and power and influence, that they use the system that they are within. They use the institution that they are a part of in order to expand their own wealth, power, and influence, expand their dynasty, expand their reach. And this is done, this was done with the church, this is done with the state, and this is how things work. They use the religion, the theology, just like they use the politics of today, and um, they influence through indoctrination or through propaganda. Uh, the the idea of propaganda actually used to be a positive term that was uh, specifically related to a religious application. But the overall point here is that with this, where did the church derive its power? Did they have these vast militaries? Did they have the force? Did they have this arm where they could just crush kings left and right if they were to ever step out of line? And what about individual people? Could they do that to them too? Well, at times and in ways, maybe. But overall, the church derived its power from people giving it its power. That is how the church had its power, just like that's how the state has its power today. Yes, there is force involved there, but at the same time, 
the reason why a few thousand people can rule millions of people is because those millions of people believe that those thousands should rule or that that system of rulership should exist, regardless of whether they agree that those thousands and those positions are the right people for the job. They still believe in this system of having a state, just like people believed in the system of having the church and everything being religious. And that's how they defined their culture and themselves and everything. Just like now people define their culture, their situations, themselves, their own individual preferences through their political lens. In the historical time period, you did have many people that called out these issues and these corruptions. You could look at Wycliffe or Jan Hus and different examples here that are very interesting examples. And you would think that, oh, this is an even much more, uh, or let's say that these people had much more potential than Martin Luther. And maybe they did. Maybe they had better arguments. Maybe they had better applications and methods and strategies. And they were more successful in ways. But the things never did really take off. These movements never really took off. There was a very limited scope of effect. The pieces weren't really in place yet societally. So it's similar to the anti-establishment movements of the 60s and 70s. Yes, there were cultural shifts. Yes, those had some impacts in society as a whole, but it, it didn't devolve the state in any way. It didn't make fundamental changes to how society operated and what was going on. Uh, but they were these movements that people thought had a lot of potential. They did have a lot of impact on smaller, in smaller ways, in smaller territories, just like some of these early reformers did as well. But the overall societal change doesn't come until the pieces are in place. It doesn't come until the technology's there. It doesn't come until the culture has shifted. It doesn't come until these things have really taken seed. And that's when the shoots can then sprout up. And that's what's going on today. I've used the example of mycelium with mushrooms and the log is being colonized right now. And as that log is completely colonized, then there is through sheer force and pressure, the mycelium fruits and it pushes through the bark and it pushes through the wood and it fruits a mushroom. That's where the mushrooms come from. And that's what's happening today. The, the mushrooms are starting to come because that pressure has built and now is the time. The technology has gotten here. Just like in the pre uh, previous time period, the new technology was the movable type printing press. And uh, this was something that really created the whole milieu that let the Reformation happen. This was the big thing. And the same could be said of the internet and our digital reformation that's happening in today's world. Uh, not to mention the cultural changes and the changes with education, the changes with economics, the changes with all these different things that are happening all at the same time, just like they were back then, and just like they are now. So, with the printing press, you then had a freer flow of information. You had more dissenting views. You had more propaganda. It, it goes both ways. And every institution was using this. So just like the state today is using the technology of the internet to track and trace people, to control people, to manipulate people, to spit out propaganda, you also have anti-establishments that are using the, uh, or sorry, anti-establishment movements that are using the internet as a method for spreading their propaganda and calling out the corruptions of the church. And th this is something that is taking root more now 
than it did, let's say, in the 60s and 70s. And I would argue because the technology is here, because the culture is ready, because the institutions are shifting, because all of this is happening at the same time. All of the pieces are now in place societally. And so things will change. Now, there were worries at the time with the printing press that it, you would get information overload because there would be so many different writings and so many different books and so many different letters that could be passed around and sermons and all these things, and that people would just have too much information. They would lose their ability to discern. They would lose this critical thinking and the, the true education that they had to analytically look at certain things, and instead, they would be led astray. They would choose entertainment over quality. They would they would end up being a dumbed-down society because of the effect that this information would have on them. That was a worry then, and I don't even need to make the parallel that that is the worry today, that technology is doing these things. Now, on the positive side, there was much more decentralized distribution, which is more censorship-resistant. It's the it creates the ability, the environment where something can go viral, where a piece of information or content can expand to thousands of people, millions of people in a very short amount of time. And relatively, that is what was going on with Martin Luther, with the Reformation, with this time period, with the printing press, even though, you know, a few years was equivalent to a few minutes in today's world, it was still relative to the culture and the society and the time period and the technology, very similar. You also have an exponential increase in authorship and people that were creating content, making content, and that was going on today. That's uh, that is going on today. That was going on then. And with all of this, the technology of the printing press, uh, it was calling out corruptions. It was exposing the corruption of the church. You had gossip that was being spread around about things going on. You had pornography that was infiltrating, and you even had the witch hunts that were enabled by the the printing press because you had these books that were defining what a witch was and giving these reports of these infestations of witches and, well, how do you judge a witch? How do you tell who she is? All of these kinds of things. Um, And in a lot of ways, the witch hunts were enabled by this technology of the printing press. It even shaped the language, where instead of having these local dialects that were very different, you had a more universal language that started to develop because you have this written word that was becoming more and more common. People were becoming more and more literate, and they started to speak more and more the same language, Uh, even though you could say that it was the same language. With the varying dialects, it was very different. There wasn't a more or centralized, uh, structured, hierarchical, material language that existed uh, before this. And so uh, all of these things were going on then, all of these things are going on now. With all of this, it undermines the church's or the state's monopoly on interpretation. So no longer do we only get the truth coming from the state and state-supported media, just like they no longer were only getting the truth from the church. They also potentially could be getting it from other sources, and uh, it was up to them to figure out which source they would believe. Bibles and commentary to scripture was something that at one point 
there was a monopoly on it by the church, by the priestly class. They were the ones that handled all that stuff. Whereas in today's world, the state used to be the only source for a lot of this information, for uh, a lot of the news that comes out, these types of things. And that's no longer the case you start to get a more individualistic ideology that develops. And this was a cultural shift, is a cultural shift, but also it's influenced by this technology, a more decentralized technology, more authors. You have the the ability to read multiple points of view. You have the ability to write or to create content. It's, it's much more individualistic. You determine truth. You read it for yourself. It's this idea um, at that time period of scholasticism versus uh, humanism. So scholasticism was more focused on commentaries, and they would read a lot of commentaries. Uh, The Catholic religion in general, there is a lot more commentary involved in how priests and the Pope relays their messages. It's not as much direct scripture reading. One of their roles is to interpret scripture. They say that they are the experts, so they know scripture. They are not going to fall astray, so they will teach you because you don't necessarily know. You might get the wrong idea if you try to read it all yourself and interpret it all yourself. So that's kind of the role, one of the roles of the church. And that's uh, educationally in the medieval time period, uh, that was the more of the idea behind scholasticism, reading more commentaries. And then as it shifted to humanism, it was more about the source documents, more about going to the original authors themselves and reading them and interpreting them and analyzing them themselves on their own merit versus reading the commentaries. And so this obviously goes right along with reading the Bible for oneself. That was the whole idea, especially the Anabaptists, but definitely the Reformation as a whole, where it wasn't just the church's interpretation of things and how they did things and applied things. Uh, Now, the common person was starting to interact with the Bible, with Scripture itself, and starting to uh, figure out uh, what the truth was for themselves, instead of having that filtered through the church. The church says that you can't handle interpretation, that you need a mediator. And uh, they argue that there's a lack of hierarchy, that this creates chaos. And that's what going on today as well. The state says that you can't handle all of the misinformation that exists on the internet today, all of the fake news. You need a mediator. You need fact checkers. You need laws and regulations to protect you. And if we don't have this, and if everything is just coming at you from all over the place, and you have individuals posting these different things and videos and snippets and commentaries and these types of things, then you end up with a lack of hierarchy. You end up with chaos. And uh, that is what is happening. And so you end up with a culture overall, just the influence of the technology itself. And uh, I guess I can get into Marshall McLuhan here a little bit. So uh, I'll get into him in just a second. So uh, with all of these changes, you have self-interpretation And that was what was going on with theology in the historical period. And today, it's more this cultural idea of relative truth. So in today's world, you have access to all of this information, and you can decide for yourself what is true or what isn't. Or maybe you think that some things are true for some people and not for others. And all of this boils down to a very individualistic approach, that they are individuals, you are individuals, and you can make up your own minds, and that you are an individual and you can make up your own mind, and that things aren't necessarily written in stone. And that was the idea with uh, this 
revolution with this reformation of the church where uh, things weren't written in stone. It wasn't just what the church said was. Uh, There was some stuff that was a little more fluid that might be wrong, that might be different. There might be different interpretations for different people, but maybe they were all still Christians. Uh, Maybe they weren't. And the same could be said today, where uh, I would argue that most people are all still statists. And whether they identify as as someone on the left or they identify as someone on the right, as a Democrat or a Republican or whatever of this denomination or that, whether they identify as uh, someone that follows Luther or someone that follows Calvin or someone that sticks with the Catholic Church, it doesn't really matter. You could be left, right, or center. You're still within this structure of statism that is the milieu that you exist in. That's how you, that is your worldview. Your worldview is filtered through politics. And whether you realize it or not, that's just the case. And in this historical time period, like I've said before, you have you're either Catholic or Protestant. You identify as one or the other, and your worldview is filtered through that lens. Just like today, you're either left or right, and all things were religious, just like all things now are political. And so I guess now I'll just do a very brief uh, bit about Marshall McLuhan, because one of the things that he calls out that's very relevant to this aspect of the cultural changes that were going on then that are going on now, especially in relation to the technology of the printing press and the technology of the internet is that it's 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 this idea of the medium is the message and it's not necessarily about the content so uh, applying it in the context of this episode and this information here it's this idea that having the printing press as a technology and having it used where you are having all these things printed off and more access to information, more authorship, all of these types of things that I mentioned, that in and of itself changes society, that changes the culture, that changes the individual and their worldview, just like the internet itself. It changes people. It changes the culture. It changes society. It changes people's worldview. It changes how people interact with the world. It changes how people interact with each other. And this is something that is done just uh, solely based on the, the technology itself, not necessarily the content that is pushed on that technology. And so it's the same way with the printing press. It's not just about what the church was printing off or what Luther was printing off or what the secularists were printing off. That's that's not the point. The point is the technology itself. When you look at this macro level, that is the point. And the same is true today. It's not about the misinformation that's out there. It's not about the corporations and their advertising and manipulating people and gathering data. It's not about the state using propaganda and using the internet for that and trying to convince people and uh, sponsoring fact checkers and filtering information, censoring people. It's not about those specific applications and how the technology is being used. It's about the fact that the technology exists and the changes that that makes. That is the big deal. That is the change. The technology itself, the medium is the message. It's not the content. It's the technology. That was true then. That is true today. And especially when you marry that with all of these other changes and shifts that are going on, it, it just uh, it leads us to the hopefully the next series, and uh, that would be looking into these historical patterns and cycles and parallels and uh, all of these things tied together. 
and it's just such a it's such a beautiful picture and it really brings everything together very nicely so we will get into that and this has been i guess a little longer than i expected so I will sign off. I do want to say thank you. I know there's at least, I think there's one more person that did sign up as a patron and I don't remember their name and my internet is not currently functioning very well right now. It's a little spotty for some reason. I haven't had time to figure that out. But uh, because of that, I can't look up your name. So I'm sorry. I'll try to give you a shout out in the next episode. But thank you anyway. Thank you very much for your support and being willing to give a monthly amount in order to help support this show. If anybody else wants to do so, please feel free to do so. It would be greatly appreciated. That is how I pay for this show. That's how I pay to produce this show. And that is how this show is out there for everybody for free. If you are interested. And if you want to pay for it, then wonderful. That helps support it and get it out there to everybody else. Now, I also want to encourage people to leave a rating and ideally a review as well. I have not actually looked at those. I was going to right before the episode. And again, the internet wasn't working well. So I don't know if I've gotten any in the past few weeks, but I will check that and see, and I will give you a specific thank you so long as I do see that. But uh, either way, thank you if you have. Thank you if you do. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you for reaching out. I've gotten a few emails lately of people that have uh, really been enjoying recent episodes, some newcomers, some old timers. Thank you very much for reaching out. I really appreciate that. That helps me getting that feedback and making some connections with listeners. Uh, That's what it's all about. I produce this content for you. It's not just for me, even though I personally do enjoy it. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I am doing it. It's mainly to get it out there to you, the listener, to people that want this information that would benefit from this content. So uh, hearing from you, the listener, is always helpful for me achieving that goal. But I am done. I'm out of here. Be back next time. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.